Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 John. <clears throat> we continue in 1 John this morning in chapter 3. First John 3, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, for us to get a really proper understanding of this passage, we need to look at the Gospel of Matthew just briefly in regard to the teaching of Christ that helps us to properly understand 1 John and rightly interpret it. Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> verses 15 through 20 the Lord Jesus warned his disciples that there would be false preachers and false professors within confessing Christianity, which, as we've been learning in 1 John, that's something that John was confronting in his day as well. So Jesus makes the prediction, and John deals with the fulfillment. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus here is comparing prophets, preachers, teachers to trees. And he says that a false prophet is like a dead tree. Starts out sounding like it's an unhealthy tree, but as he goes on, he makes it clear that actually the issue is worse than unhealthy. We're dealing here with a dead tree, a tree that does not have life within it. 
And so Jesus says the outward appearance of the false prophets will fit in nicely. So outwardly, from their speech, from their outward appearance, they will look as though they fit into Christianity. But when you look at the fruit of their lives, that which is coming forth from their hearts, that is contrary to their profession of faith. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. But now pay attention to verse 18, because this is really a key, and John picks up on this language in the passage that we're going to look at in detail. A healthy tree cannot, that's a key word, cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, there is something going on inwardly at the level of the root that determines the fruit. And Jesus says that the the unhealthy tree, the dead tree, the diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Why? Because its root is rotten. And those trees which do not bear good fruit, he says in verse 19, eventually will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus is working backwards from the fruit to the root, and he's saying that the fruit, the genuine fruit of a person's life, not simply their outward appearance or their speech, but actually their character, the fruit of their character is what gives visibility to the true nature of their heart. So understanding that now helps us here in 1 John chapter 3. So let's go back there. Because we see here a big idea in John's mind as he is penning these words. And that is this, that every true Christian receives a new nature at conversion, which results in progressive sanctification. So John does what Jesus does, and that is he goes beyond outward appearance and what a person professes with their lips to what their heart actually produces. And John will argue throughout this passage that when a sinner comes to know Jesus in an authentic way, with authentic faith, and is truly converted to Christ, then God begins a work inside of him or her that then begins to change their character, which then results in fruit, the fruit of progressive sanctification. Not the fruit of perfection, because John's already dealt with that numerous times. He's not saying that a true Christian never sins. But what he will make very clear in this passage of Scripture is that a true Christian cannot continue living in a pattern of habitual sin. There's a difference between sinning and living in sin. And that's the distinction that John is going to make here for us. 
And so as we work through the passage, we're going to notice that John gives us three characteristics of true children of God. And I'm using that adjective true because he has thus far in his letter been comparing pretenders to those who are actually real Christians. He's confronting false teachers who have been affecting and infecting the believers who are receiving this letter. And he's been making it clear that not all who say they are a Christian are actually a Christian. Number one, notice the first characteristic. True children of God have a new understanding of sin and the sin-conquering work of Christ. Notice he says in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now notice the repetition of the word practice because here he is making a distinction between a Christian who struggles with temptation and sins at times and the person who says they are Christian but live in a state of sin. They are living in sin. They're not sinning on occasion and then repenting and dealing with it before God based upon the forgiveness of Christ, but they are living in a state of sin. And he defines sin for us, which goes way beyond outward appearance and even outward behavior. Notice he says, sin is lawlessness. Now, sin is many different things, but this is the core, John is saying. What does it mean to be lawless? Well, to be lawless means to to live as if there is no law, to live as if there is no restraint, to live as though you are above the law. The law doesn't apply to you. It applies to everyone else, but it doesn't apply to you. This is the defiant nature of the human heart. So what John is saying is this, that a pretender is a professing Christian who will not be restrained. They will not allow themselves to be restrained by anyone, by any of the authority structures that God has put in their life, by any of the laws of God. They are their own person, and they will not allow anyone to infringe upon their total autonomy. That's what it means to be lawless. That's at the core of what sin is. And that's what happens every time even we as Christians sin against God. We are at that moment pretending that we have ultimate authority. And we're refusing to submit to God. And then thankfully the Holy Spirit convicts us he grieves our conscience, he grieves our heart, and, and he brings us to that place of confession and restoration to the Lord again so that we can continue to grow in him. But the pretender never goes through that process. There is no restraint for the pretender. It's just all about themselves. Now notice also verse 5. Because not only is there a new understanding of sin as being not something that 
that is out there, but something that is in here. But there's also a new understanding of why Jesus Christ came, why he died on the cross for our sins, why he rose from the dead. You know, verse 5, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now notice the difference here. He's talking in verse 4, singular sin. The characteristic of sin is lawlessness, defiance, living as if there is no law, and sins, plural, that is the individual and cumulative acts that we commit because of our sin nature. Jesus is the one who has no sin. In him, there is no sin. And so in the, in the one who has no sin is the qualification to take away the sins of those of us who do, which is all of us. He appeared in order to take away sins. Now, turn back uh, to Romans chapter 7 with me. Last Sunday, we touched a little bit on Romans 6, so I want to pick it up here in 7, because Paul here in chapter 7 is correcting a potential misunderstanding about the Christian's relationship to the law. It is right for Paul to assume that after he makes it very clear that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, it is not based upon works, and it is apart from the law, that some Christians might say, okay, well, then the law has no authority over us whatsoever. We are not only free in Christ, but we are totally free in Christ, free from any restraints, free from any of God's laws. And so Paul corrects that, and he teaches us what is our relationship to the law, beginning in verse 7 of Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So right away, he's correcting the, the, mis, the possible misunderstanding that someone will say, well, the law is bad then. No, no, it's not bad. The law is good. The law is righteous. What's bad is our hearts. That's the issue. By no means, verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So again, he's, now he goes on. The problem isn't the law. The problem is sin in us. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. The law didn't do this to me. Paul says, no, it was sin producing death in me 
through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So over and over and over, Paul says, the problem is not the law. The problem is the sin nature that gets provoked by the very idea that there is a restraint. Paul says, I didn't even know what covetousness was until the law said, you shall not covet. Why? Because then what the law does is the law shows us how holy God is and how sinful we are, and our response is, who are you, God, to tell me what to do? That's the sin nature's response. That's that defiant lawlessness that's in us by by nature. But when Christ comes, and when we come to Christ, something changes inside of us. And now there's a new relationship to God's law. No longer do we continue to live as though we are autonomous and have no restraints upon us. But now we understand that now in Christ we are free from the law in the sense of condemnation, but now we are free to obey the law because God's spirit now lives within us. So it's really important for us to understand this. And this is why John is making it very clear that when God does this work of conversion in us, part of that is to bring us to a new understanding of sin. No longer do we just see sin as the bad things that we do or the bad things that we do that we got caught doing. The problem is much deeper than that. The problem is a rebellious nature that says, I want my way, I want it now, I want it any way that I can get it, and I will manipulate everyone in my life to make sure that I get it. And Christ comes into our lives and says, no, no, that's no longer the way that you live. Now you live under my authority, under my lordship, and I will produce fruit that matches this new root. See where this is going? John is saying there's a root problem in us. And you don't correct the, the problem with a, with a diseased tree in your yard outwardly. You have to do something that affects it internally. And so God does that through the gospel. He deals with the root problem of our sin. He appeared to take away our sins. Praise God. Second characteristic, please notice, true children of God are united with Christ, which alters their relationship to the devil. So now, in Christ, God's word says that when we as sinners come to Jesus... And, and we receive him and all that he offers to us with empty-handed faith, we are then united with him. We have then died to sin. We've been raised to new life. We are now in union with him. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 15 when he says, Abide in me and, and, and I in you, uh, that, that he is uh, the vine and we are the branches. 
Well, now that there has been a fundamental change in our relationship to God, that we are now in union with Christ, that also then means there is now an altered relationship to the devil. Now, John could have called the devil many, many things. He could have called the devil Satan or the evil one or the liar or uh, the father of lies or the great deceiver. There are uh, up to about 50 different names that are given to the devil in the Bible. But here, uh, John just deals with, with this more generic name, the devil, the evil one. Let no one deceive you, verse 7. Again, we're seeing this over and over. Little children. John's heart of affection for these people, these believers, leads him to be so concerned that these false teachers would not deceive them. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices or makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So notice again this contrast between what you practice, the contrast, it's either righteousness or evil as the general pattern of your life, and that general pattern then is what reveals the nature of your heart the true condition of your heart before God. So the one whose heart has been changed by God through the gospel, whose root has been altered, will now begin to practice righteousness. This will be the new pattern of the Christian's life. Why? Because he is righteous, because he, the one who gave us his righteousness by faith or by a gift received through faith, he is righteous. And now our union with him results in practical righteousness. And so, again, as I've said over and over in this series... Our assurance of salvation does not come from merely being able to look backwards in time and remember a time that we prayed a prayer or we walked an aisle or we signed a card or we did whatever we were told to do. Our assurance of salvation comes from looking at the course of our Christian life and asking ourselves, do I see a pattern of progressive righteousness, progressive sanctification? Do I see change? Or am I still the same old rotten-to-the-core sinner, but I just do a few different things now because now I'm religious? Has Jesus fundamentally changed the disposition of my heart? Or have I just added Jesus to my life? You see the difference? John is dealing here with the issue of what is going on in the core of our being. So true children of God are united with Christ, which then alters their relationship to the devil. 
The devil, John says, has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if you come to church on Sunday, but you live like the devil Monday through Saturday, let me say what John would say to you. You better look into the mirror and ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Or have I just deceived myself? Have I been around Christian things long enough to be able to pick up on the lingo? What a Christian says and doesn't say. Or the really bad things that Christians don't do and the really good things that Christians do. You've got to look into the mirror of God's word. That's what John is saying to us. And, and ask yourself, has there been a fundamental change in the disposition of my heart, or am I still as lawless as I was before? I'm still at the core of my being just as rebellious as I was when I think I came to Christ. But you've just kind of figured out how to work the system to still get what you want. See, sin can be so deceitful and we can deceive ourselves and we can be deceived. And that's why John is saying, don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you. In Christ, we have a different relationship, not only with God, but with the devil as well. Look at Hebrews chapter uh, 2. We see here, the author of Hebrews makes it clear, go, go left. I was going right in my Bible. You should go left. <laughs> a few books to Hebrews chapter 2. And the author here makes it very clear again why Jesus came, one of the reasons he came, and even one of the reasons why the Son of God became a man in the person, in the flesh and blood person of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since we are flesh and blood, he himself, the Son of God, likewise partook of the same things. What? Flesh and blood. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see what, what Jesus has done for us? He came to destroy the works of the devil, to render the devil powerless, to change our relationship to the devil. And so now the devil is a defeated enemy. He's defeated, but he's fighting back. He knows that he's already lost the war, but he is going to do everything he can to win as many battles as he can until that time comes. And that's how he's working, to tempt us, to work on us, to deceive us. Why? Because he wants to win some battles along the way, even though the war has already been won by Jesus. And we should take great comfort in that, because sometimes don't you feel so attacked Sometimes don't you feel like the temptation to sin is just so powerful? And yet, God's word says, 
Jesus has already conquered the devil. He's already destroyed him. That the war has already been won. But in the meantime, this devil who, who has been defeated, but is still being allowed to function on a long leash that God has given him to serve God's purposes, which are mysterious to us, we don't have to follow the devil anymore because our relationship with the devil has fundamentally changed. Because now we are in union with Christ. Jesus says it this way in Luke 11. He says, when a strong man fully armed, he's talking about Satan in the context of this, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Satan is going after whatever spoil he can still get, even though he's been defeated. So true children of God are united with Christ which alters their relationship to the devil. Then thirdly, notice, true children of God cannot habitually live in sin because they have been reborn. Notice the language that John uses here. He does not say that true children of God do not live in sin. He uses the word cannot. That's very important because what John is doing here, he's drawing attention to the fact that in a Christian, in one who truly is saved, something has changed internally such that going on and living in sin is no longer an option for the Christian. No one born of God, verse 9, makes a practice of sinning. There's that language again. Keeps on as the habitual state of their life. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, look back at verse 9. So, again, no one born of God. That's a phrase that's, that's used repeatedly in First John, talking about no one who is born again, no one who has come to true faith in Christ and has been reborn by the Holy Spirit can continue to live in sin. Why? Because the fundamental relationship has changed. And now God the judge has become God the heavenly father who according to Hebrews 12 will not allow you and me to continue in patterns of sin without disciplining us. He loves us too much. He will discipline us. He will chasten us. He will do what he has to do to bring us back to fellowship with him. But the one born of God, John says, cannot keep on sinning. Why? 
because he has been born of God. And what happened when he was born of God? Well, God's seed took root in him. There's a new root. And this new root won't allow the continual, habitual, unrepentant sin. What is the seed? Well, the seed is the life of God, the new nature. This seed is that which the Holy Spirit produced in marriage with the Word of God. According to Romans 10, that it's God's Word that God uses to produce saving faith in us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But it's the Spirit of God, according to Jesus in John 3, that breathes new life into us through the Gospel. And so it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates, causes us to be born again, causes us to be born of God, to use John's language. This is the new nature that we receive at the moment of salvation. Look at Second Peter for a moment. Just turn back one, one book in your Bible, Second Peter chapter 1. Peter tells us about this new nature. It's so encouraging for us. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. His divine power, that's God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, in Christ, God has given to us everything that we need in order to live godly lives for his glory, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, look at the next phrase, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Then he goes on to command us to put on all of these Christian virtues. In other words, now that God has made this fundamental shift in the disposition of your heart toward him and toward the law and toward godliness and toward sin and toward the devil, now put on all of these Christian virtues as a way of demonstrating that the life of God is alive within you. So that's what the nature is. That's what the divine nature is. The divine nature is the very life of God that has been placed within us by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, to cause us to follow the Son of God. This is this rebirth that the Bible describes. And going back then to 1 John 3, notice the way he ends verse 10. John is always after our hearts. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John simply will not allow us to forget that genuine Christians have a different relationship with people a relationship that is characterized by love. 
specifically, most importantly, love for one another in the family of God. But we also love unbelievers. We love the lost. We love our enemies, as Jesus commands us. We love those who do not know Christ because we want them to know him. John is making it very clear that when God the Holy Spirit converts a sinner, turns us into a follower of Jesus, more than outward things change, more importantly, something deep at the core of our being changes. We receive a new root, a new heart, the divine nature, which then begins to permeate every part of our tree, if we want to think of our lives as a tree. And John says one of those fruits will be the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. So the question this morning is this. Are you a partaker of the divine nature, or are you a pretender? Because that's what this passage of Scripture is compelling us to ask ourselves. Have we been changed by Christ, and are we being changed by Christ? Or are we just pretending, fitting in, There is great hope for us as sinners that God would send his son to do what John has explained here, to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. There is freedom, true freedom, only in Christ. The world and sin and the devil will tell us over and over that freedom comes in lawlessness, Freedom comes in being free from any kind of law, any kind of restraint, any kind of moral value. But God's word says no true freedom comes in Christ, knowing him and following him. Let's pray. Father, we are so amazed at the greatness of your love for us in Christ. And you have given us this word of God to protect us from deceivers. As John wrote this letter to his little children, his dear children, people whom he loved in the faith, but who were being led astray by teachers who were distorted in their doctrine of Christ and distorted in their understanding of salvation and sin and, and the Christian's relationship to sin and the devil. God, we thank you so much that in Christ you have fundamentally changed the very core of our being and you have changed our attitude towards sin. You've changed our relationship to the devil. You've changed the affections of our hearts. We now want godly things that we didn't want before. And so because of that, Lord, when we do sin, we get frustrated and grieved because we don't want to sin anymore.
And so thank you for the promise of your word, one of these great and precious promises that when we do sin, we can run to you. And if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit who knows each of our hearts would do the work that only he can do. He is the one who knows us better than even we know ourselves. So I pray that he would apply the word of God to our hearts as we continue to grow in following Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.